Hello, and welcome to The Potential State. My name is Dr. Asel Romanelli, and today I want to talk to you about if you really want to live, go down to the dance floor. The dance floor and the balcony are metaphors we use many times in experiential education or in processing or even in therapy that distinguish between being an, uh, an active player in the game of life, in the play of life, and going up on the balcony reflecting. If you will, the dance floor is where I am face to face with whatever other person I'm in in the relationship or in the situation or the organization or the institution. This balcony is when I go into my reflective, kind of uh, critical thinking. Said another word, dance floor is where my experiencing self is, right? Common, where myself is experiencing life. And when I go up on the balcony, it's my remembering self. I'm reflecting back. And I'm kind of, it's much more of a sterile position. The price I pay when I'm on the dance floor is that I'm vulnerable. I might get hurt. It's full of ruptures and repairs. People can see where I stand. I have to make a stand. Whereas I'm in the balcony, I'm much more safe and protected. I'm reflective. I'm, I'm in control. But the prices I'm paying is apathy sometimes and boredom because nothing's really touching me. Some sort of criticism, loneliness almost like contempt. And I've been thinking about this topic a lot, first of all, in the clinic and also in my personal life, and realizing that for many of us, we prefer to go to the balcony than on the dance floor. Something about the balcony seems safer, seems calmer, seems more uh, mature, more evolved, more self-soothing, more regulated. And the dance floor has a stigma of being wild and crazy and irresponsible and impulsive. Well, actually, what I'm thinking about is obviously we need a balance, but I think for most people, my message would be go more on the dance floor. And I want to connect this to this idea. One of the theater improvisations presuppositions is follow the fear. So when you're doing a scene on stage, if it's robbing a bank or proposing to your partner, most uh, beginning improvisers will wait, will stall. So they want to rob a bank. They'll be like, wait, we don't have a gun. What if we get caught? Or if this is a proposal scene, the partner will go, wait, I'm not so sure. Where the whole audience already wants to see the kiss, wants to see the proposal, wants to see the bank robbery. So there's this rule called follow the fear. See what scares you and go there. Because that's what the audience wants to see. That's what the scene needs. And if you take this as a metaphor for life, follow the fear. What scares you? What have you been avoiding? Go there. Right, there's a big risk. It's a high-risk, high-gain moment. I might lose a lot. I might have a huge fight. But I also might gain. And usually the gains are a sense of vitality, congruence, authenticity. And I'm reminding us that on the dance floor, it's full of ruptures and repairs. That's where the sloppiness of life is. I might get hurt. I might hurt someone else. I might say something I'll later regret. But at least I'm not wasting my life up in the castle looking down on the balcony like those two... Uh, Old, old guys in the Muppets, right? They're always gossiping. They're always telling jokes, right? They have, they're, they're a one-up physically, literally, from the rest of the Muppets, but they're always alone. They're never part of the actual fun. I want to give you guys a few examples on, on moving to the dance floor or not moving to the dance floor. A few years ago, I was working with this couple, and when I went the, met the woman alone, she confessed that she's actually been in the balcony for many, many years in her marriage. She focused her libido on work, a little bit on the kids, 
but anything that regarded anything that was connected to her marriage, she stayed in the balcony. She reflected on it. She was full of content to her husband. She didn't really feel anything. She kind of shut herself down erotically, sexually, libid, libid in the, with the, her from her libido, libido. And she was content like that. But actually, fast forward a few years of that, she was actually very alone and bored. In fact, she was so alone that she couldn't even imagine a reality where she would be excited or looking forward to or just passionate about anything in her marriage. You see, when you're on the balcony, you can't really be on the balcony just in one area of your life. The balcony is contagious because once you get used to the nice bleachers in the balcony, it's really hard to go back on the field where it's raining, where it's wet, where it's snowing, where people might boo you. In your balcony, in the bleacher seat, you're the smartest person, right? Like all those sports commentators that know exactly what to do and they're giving all these tips, but they're not actually there. Another price you pay when being on the balcony while your partner, son, daughter, colleague, friend is on the dance floor is you might have amazing advice to give, but they're on the dance floor looking up and saying, what are you talking about? You have no idea what you're talking about. It's come down here. Right? So you don't get any credit, even if what you're saying is valid. But since you're stuck on the balcony, you are not going to be listened to. You're not going to be respected. And what happens is, is that you're full of contempt and criticism to the people on the field, whether they're right or whether rightly so or wrongly so. And the people on the field are considering you not relevant, facetious, obnoxious, aggressive. So when I'm, when I'm sitting and talking to this woman, I said to her, well, look how many years you've been in the balcony here. You don't even remember how it is to really duke it out with him, to really meet him, for good and for bad. And she didn't even understand what I was talking about. And I still think about that session, and I never really knew what happened with that, with that conversation. Did she ever dare to go on the dance floor later? I don't know. Another example I want to give from my professional life is when I'm facilitating so in the past, I used to shy away from participants that I felt weren't so much into the content or into my delivery, or something about me and my content wasn't, was rubbing them the wrong way. So I used to avoid them, not, use the, not do exercises with them, not ask them their opinions, not even make eye contact. But as I'm maturing as a facilitator, I'm actually trying to go there and want to hear what they're thinking about, what's happening there getting a little dose of reality, a little dose of some tough love, a little dose of some, some criticism that's going to make me think. And, and I remember one instant where I was facilitating for a, a yearly group and I was avoiding one woman. And it was bad. It was bad. The, the group dynamics were bad and it wasn't really working. And I avoided the conversation with her. And it took me a whole year until I finally opened up. And by the time we already discussed it, the year was over. And she said amazing things. She said really important things about her feelings, about the group dynamics, about my facilitation. All that was lost because I didn't want to go on the dance floor. I'd rather stay on the balcony in my own supervision, talking about the situation and analyzing it than actually going down to the dance floor and talking to her and saying the thing and following the fear. Saying the thing in improv means, means saying what's the reality right now. Saying the thing could be like, I see the group dynamics are not working with you. I see that you're, you're alone most of the exercises. Or if it's couple therapy, I see that you're not into your husband. You're just not there. He's sharing all these feelings and, and you're just closed. You're stonewalling the situation. So those are two examples in the professional context of people going on the dance floor or not going on the dance floor. I want to give some more 
examples that are closer to my life, to my personal life. And <clears throat> I want to think one about parenting. You know, when the kids were young and I saw that they were, the situation was starting to warm up, I used to always find excuses why not to be there. Doing the laundry, you know, making the, the breakfast uh, the breakfast sandwiches for the kids. And I'd let my wife, Galid, kind of go to the front lines. So on one hand, that the secondary gain I had from that was she would get all these fights and there would be ruptures and repairs and anger and tears. And I would always swoop in, you know, to save the day, the good guy, the good cop, and she was the bad cop. But the price I paid over time was there was a lack of respect for me as a parent. First of all, in my own eyes, because I saw I couldn't do, be dealing with the conflict. Second of all, with, with my wife, she was on the dance floor, on the battlefield, whatever metaphor you want to use, and I was on the balcony giving her tips. And she was like, you're not even here. You have no right to even critique me or what's happening, even if I had a valid point. And third is, even though my kids were young, I had a sense that they weren't really respecting me. They realized that when push came to shove, I was not there. And I feel like something that's been changing in the past few months, maybe one or two years, where I'm actually looking for those situations. I want to be there on the dance floor. I want to be there when shit hits the fan. I want to hit, be there when somebody needs to say the no. And on one hand, I'm getting a lot more ricochets, but I'm feeling the sense of vitality, the sense of being relevant, the sense of being active. I feel like they're, they're feeling me next to them, across from them, putting down the boundaries, letting them know where they need to go. And that's actually giving me a sense of pride, of presence, of authority. And I think that is a wonderful feeling and I'm feeling it and I'm feeling the effects it has on, on me, on my parenting and on my marriage. Another example, which is kind of uh, from a different angle, is in Puglia, which is like the Jewish Halloween in Israel. People dress up. And um, that specific day, I had two sessions in the clinic right here. And I was going to dress up as usual, you know, button-up shirt. And my wife said, why don't you dress up? And I was like, well, I don't know, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, I'm a therapist, but I'm going to dress up in a costume. And she said, well, you're, you're preaching about play, right, in potential states. So don't you think it's time for you to model that for your clients? And she went off to work, and I was standing there looking in the mirror, and I was thinking, yes, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to go in the dance room. I'm going to dress up. So I took my traditional costume, which is a chef, which is too, you know, not too crazy, but but also not too boring. And I went down to work and clients opened the door and they saw me as the chef and there was a little bit of a rupture or a surprise and it immediately became a conversation topic. And I said, yeah, because I believe in play. I believe in not taking yourself too seriously. I believe in bringing different parts of yourself. So for me, this was a moment of not preaching from the balcony, telling my clients, you guys should be more playful. I, was, I went on the dance floor and if I'm dressed as a chef, so I can certainly challenge them and say, bring out the play. Don't take yourself too seriously. And I think for me, that was a very uh, a vital moment of the dance floor. And I want to give one more example, um, which is connected to politics. Personally, I'm not a very political person. I find it very anxiety. It's very, it makes me very anxious to think about politics and to be politically active. But when it comes to elections, at least in Israel, I feel like I cannot be silent anymore. And there's a price you pay uh, when you identify yourself publicly, politically. People will put you in categories. They'll make certain assumptions. They'll ridicule you, maybe. But I said, I thought to myself, I remember two moments as a child where my parents took me to a protest. And I remember the experience of being on one side and having people on the other side yelling at you, mocking you, singing songs. 
you know, degrading songs about you, but I remember them standing tall there. And there was an elections for the municipality here in Jerusalem a few months ago, and I decided this time I'm going to go with my kids. I'm going to hang a sign on my porch. I'm going to put a status on my Facebook. I'm actually going to wear a shirt and take my kids to the mall, and we're going to hand out flyers. And what was interesting is I'm getting out, handing out flyers, so sometimes people are like very happy. People that obviously were in the same voting for the same party, high fives and good job. Many people are ridiculing me and rejecting me, not even taking my flyer or doing a face or even like yelling at me. Why do I even believe in those thoughts? And my kids were there and they saw this. And you know what I was thinking about in the beginning? I was like, oh, I don't want them to see their father being ridiculed. But on the other hand, I thought, wow, what a great model. They see that their father actually cares about something, that he's willing to get off his sofa, get out of the clinic, out of the sterile balcony, and go down to the dance floor where people are, where people, not everybody loves you, not everyone's going to give you applause. And you might get rejected a thousand times. And I remember standing there that night, at the election night at like 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, freezing cold, handing out flyers to the very few people that actually came out to vote. And some of them said, what are you doing here? This is a hopeless cause. And I just felt so good. I felt so alive. I felt like this matters. I felt for once, I'm not just letting this day pass by. And I remember living in other places in the world, whether it's London or New York, where I, I remember days would pass and I wouldn't stand for anything. Nothing made me go down, go down on the dance floor on the political level, on a municipal level. Nothing moved me. So on one hand, I was safe in my balcony, focusing on myself and my interests, but that, that big chunk of life I was just missing. I was just missing. And perhaps one more example with my wife, Galit. She was late to a certain event and I was angry and I was furious and I wouldn't want to say anything and I wanted just to be on the balcony and, and breathe and be the, you know, the mature, reflective adult who's also a therapist. But I just felt so angry and I just wanted to yell. And I did. And I just yelled at her. And as I'm yelling, it was clear to me that this is useless. It is clear to me that she's probably not even listening. And she was yelling back, obviously, because she's a thunderstorm. And, I'm a, and I was trying to be a thunderstorm, even though I'm a turtle. I shy away from conflict. But we went at it. And we yelled in my throat. I got hoarse a little bit. And when that fight kind of resolved itself or just calmed down or we were just too tired, there was a sense of relief and release. And the truth is we both could move on from that point. I, it clarified for me once I calmed down what value was, what, what was my need, what was my core value that wasn't being respected. And she could verbalize her hurt and her, her values and her needs. But there was a sense of vitality in this being hoarse and a little bit tired afterwards. At least I felt there was a moment there where we met, where there were sparks. And for me, that was a very um, novel experience because I grew up in a house where we didn't fight a lot. Where actually it was comfortably numb. So we never lost control and we'd kind of talk about things but wouldn't really let at it. The libido wasn't alive, wasn't out there. And I want to end with a few tips on how you can go down to the dance floor. So, first of all, reflect and where are you stuck in the balcony? Where do you choose to be in the balcony in your life? Is it in your marriage, with your friends, with your ch children, with your colleagues, with your boss, with your community, with the political situation, with your municipal situation? Where are you scared or just apathetic to the dance floor? Choose one of them. Choose one area where you actually want to follow the fear. 
and save a thing, where you actually want to go down to that store and get dirty. And the first thing I'd recommend is talk to yourself about it. Re rehearse it in your mind. Remember we spoke about self-talk? So talk to yourself about it. Pretend you're already doing it. See yourself doing it. Act it out in your own living room, in your own closet. Act it out in the shower. Just see how that feels. Let all the fear, the positive anxiety come out, but also the release. What would you say? What would you do? How would you give out that flyer in the mom? What would you tell your wife? How would you resolve that fight between the kids? Realize that it's probably not going to be pretty and it's probably not going to be smooth. It's probably going to be choppy and sloppy and vulnerable. You might get ridiculed, but just accept that that's going to be part of that experience. And once you've rehearsed it, go down to the dance floor. And if you're already coming down expecting there to be ruptures, expecting it to be rough, expecting to be ridiculed, or surprised and remember the system your life the people around you are probably not used to you going on the dance floor in this specific area of your life so don't expect applause or thank you for coming you can expect all kinds of different reactions like now you're coming or where are you or go away or this is not your fight or a zillion other reasons of why are you doing this either belittling it criticizing it mocking it and just remember that you're doing this for your own sake. You're doing this for your own vitality. We only live once and life is short and you want to feel things. And that's the difference between it being a chair, a table, a light, or just being a human. That's what we have. We have feelings. We have that vitality that makes every single day count. And if your days pass by and, you do not, and you're stuck on the balcony, life is going to go really fast. And you might be really, really safe, but you are losing out on adventures. You're losing out on life. And the truth is, other people, they're looking for life. And if you're stuck on the balcony, you're going to be attracting to your life people that are on the balcony as well and just want to analyze life as it's going by. Or you'll be surrounding yourself by people on the field that feel like you don't know what it is to be them. And you'll find yourself being not relevant, one-up, alone, criticized, mocked, because your inability to go down on the dance floor. And after all the shame has passed and the wave of ridicule and you're still on the dance floor, see if there's a new sense of vitality, of pride. And remember what you're doing, you're modeling for your kids and for the younger generation what it is to be a live, active citizen, citizen of the world, partner, husband, child, wife, daughter, uncle, colleague, friend, human, organism. And at the end of the day, on the dance floors, we're experiencing it. We will always go to the balcony at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the year, at the end of our life. I'm not worried about us not going to the balcony. I just wish us all a good, good amount of time on the dance floor, taking all of it in. Because if God is a DJ, then we should all be on the dance floor. My name is Dr. Asel Romanelli. And this was a potential state. I'll see you next time.